on this week's episode of Where We Are, we'll take questions from you, the listener. Uh, we have some good ones on the docket, so let's get to it. You're listening to Where We Are. Hello, hello, you're listening to Where We Are. We are the Wares. I'm Michael. I'm Melissa. And this podcast is brought to you by the That Sounds Fun Network. So glad to be a, a part of uh, that great team over there. And uh, Melissa, glad to be with you for this episode. Brief leg update. I got the clearance from the docks on Monday to put weight on my leg, and I'm I'm hobbling around now on two feet as opposed to just one, and so I feel good about like I have that. Three toddlers in the house right now. It really is. It really is. Uh, you just shuffle along. You just gotta shuffle along. Uh, but I'm starting to feel like I'm turning a corner. Turning a corner. Which which is good. Uh, housekeeping items. Uh, thanks for all the positive feedback on the Where We Are uh, brand consolidation. With our Substack. Uh, with our Substack. You go to whereweare.substack.com and check that out. Uh, thank you also to everyone who's given such positive feedback on the book. It's so, I'm excited about it, and it's so good to hear from so many of you who are excited about it. Thank you for those who have pre-ordered. It really is. And I know it seems like, well, gosh, Michael, that book doesn't come out for eight months. Um, but publishers, booksellers um, take uh, pre-orders as a sign of how excited people are for the for the book, and so appreciate you all. Uh, appreciate those of you who have pre-ordered the spirit of our politics, um, which I'm really proud of. Uh, Send in the manuscript this week. Well, there will be proof editing, so we'll do another round. Um, one thing I can announce, at least I think I can announce it. I will announce it here is that I also got clearance this week uh, to narrate the audiobook. So I'll be doing the yeah. audiobook. So I'm reclaiming hope you didn't narrate. You had a narrator, but this time you're reading your words. Yes. So that'll be fun. So those are some housekeeping items. Melissa, how are you doing? I'm doing great. We have friends here this weekend with their babies. We've got a baby in the house again. We do. And the baby wore our baby's bib at dinner, and it was just. I was getting nostalgic. I was thinking about our babies. I know you're looking at me like, it's so nice to have a baby again. I was like, no way, my dude. (laughs) (laughs) My answer was, I can't wait for all of our friends to bring their babies to sit at our dinner table. Yeah, that was pretty deft diplomatic maneuvering uh, from you. Um, We haven't done a listener's question episode in a while. Yeah. We sent out the flare and we got some great questions back from... Yeah, lots of good ones. uh, From... Uh, so many of you and so we'll just cover as many yeah. as many as we can a mix of serious and fun and fun or just more personal and we'll we'll just get to them as we can but melissa what, what do start. we have up first Let's yeah. do it. okay so there was an executive order last week made by president biden regarding child care what are our thoughts on it yeah i mean so this executive order is basically in lieu of major legislation it's really Mm -hmm. clear for those of you who will remember when they they made a decision to split build back better 
into the infrastructure bill and then um, a sort of social policy bill and then child care was sort of it didn't make the cut of what they mm -hmm. could push for and so and then and then Republicans won the house so it's really clear we're not going to get a federal child care bill this session so the Biden administration did this executive order with what they could do on, with with their authority and you know I'll be honest it's there are like 50 different administrative directives um, I think the most significant headline is, you know, one of the things they're using is trying to direct resources that of funding that was approved under the bipartisan infrastructure bill, um, and like and the um, the semiconductor uh, bill, trying to redirect those resources to support uh, uh, access to childcare. But mm -hmm. basically, you know, for those that are affected by the executive order, you know, it, it, it will, it will generally help though. Well, mm -hmm. they'll have access to funds, but this isn't, this isn't a, a massive deal for the American people. Generally, it'll be a massive deal for the people who it touches and who are affected. Um, I think my, we've talked uh, about the family fun pack, uh, Matt Brunig's, uh, uh, family policy proposal and look I think I think so much of a Democrats child care policy is intentionally <laughs> seems seems to be written to just make sure that stay at home uh, parents don't get support um it like it is very much written with a with a um a workforce priority and we've we've talked in the past there was a new york times article now maybe 12 18 months ago maybe even longer than that uh where they surveyed new york times surveyed a bunch of academics mostly economists which is super telling about what family policy the Biden administration should most prioritize and it was just stunning to see the assumptions that were embedded in 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 a, in, in uh, academia generally and in policymaking circles about what pro-family pro policy is for and I'll give you a hint it's not it's not yeah. to be pro-family <laughs> you know that it's 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 um a very much like an economy first, very, I mean, it's an economist mm -hmm. mindset that they're bringing, that many are bringing to these, uh, these questions, not a family stability mindset, not a family flourishing mindset. And so I think, Melissa, that we need, I do think childcare is an area where I mean, yes, there are different ways to go about it. You could do block grants, whatever, mm -hmm. but but generally, I I think it's going to have to be a federal policy oh, yeah. to meet the Absolutely. kind of need that's necessary. Yep, um, the, the system is way way too broken when it comes to the caregivers themselves not being able to make a decent wage for the kind of work that they're doing, and then the system is so expensive for parents. 
And so there's somebody in the middle making a ton of money. And so yes. that needs to be fixed. Yes. And so I think federal intervention is, is necessary. I have to say, like, my skepticism for our national our politics, our federal institutions being able to responsibly deal with family policy is not increasing to say the least. Mm -hmm. And so I'm concerned about the kinds of policies that would come out, but I would love to see some, some responsible, reasonable, open policies that give families the support uh, that they need. I I agree with you, Melissa, the situation is out of hand. It is Mm -hmm. unsustainable. Um, I don't see why, uh, I mean, I, I, I know there are a bunch of political reasons why, um, why there can't be a direct subsidy to parents to care for their to help support child care as they see fit, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's subsidizing stay-at-home care or subsidizing, uh, 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 you know, institutional care or, or uh, 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 support for family caregivers. Mm-hmm. Like I, do, I don't. Um, I don't like the idea of federal dollars being used to incentivize and therefore disincentivize some of the most personal sort of decisions that you make as a parent. And so, so, so that's that's my that's my kind of that, that that's my my take on I guess child care policy, uh, child care policy broadly. But this executive order, I think. A lot of positive, uh, generally positive things. Again, I'll be honest, I haven't broken down each of the 50 mm-hmm. sort of directives. Uh, but basically, that the headline is, this is this is the Biden administration doing what it can within its authority in lieu of Congress acting. Mm-hmm. So what are the most important, what is the most important SCOTUS case, so Supreme Court case, this term? Yeah, so there's... There's a lot. I mean, yeah. I, I, I think the, the one that's going to get the most attention is this decision on uh, affirmative action yeah. and uh, racial quotas in higher ed. That, that, that's that's going to be a significant case. There are also, though, some... Uh, so that's uh, students for fair admissions uh, versus University of North Carolina and versus the President Fellows of Harvard. You know, those are significant... Uh, cases, some important criminal justice cases, including involving uh, those on uh, death row and, and capital punishment cases. Uh, I think those are those are going to be significant. And then there are these uh, uh, um, like free speech uh, kinds of uh, these free speech cases that I that I think are going to be. Um, Grab some headlines as well, but but first, I'd say this: the, the affirmative action in higher ed is going to be definitely, maybe not in terms of long term import, although I think it could be very uh, sort of consequential. Uh, it, it's also going to be significant um, uh, politically. Politically, it'll be for sure the most significant case in terms of the law. You know, it, it's it's a loaded docket. Uh, there's also some labor cases. There's this uh, uh, Glacier Northwest versus the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. And so a late, uh, union case. There's a case about um, uh, 
uh, uh, worker compensation and and overtime, uh, and so 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 yeah. But I, I think there's a clear, yeah, <laughs> clear, yeah, clear cut action. answer. Yeah. The the one that popped into my head immediately when I, when I saw this question, um, because I watched it last month. Arguments were heard la- last month, so in February, and it's um, Gonzalez uh, versus Google. So Google, the tech giant. So the Gonzalez family yeah. sued Google. Um, which owns YouTube, in 2016, alleging that the tech giant aided and abetted ISIS in violation of federal anti-terrorism statutes by recommending videos posted by the terror group to users. Um, and so, obviously, those arguments have been heard, and so they're they're trying to change something with um, Section 230 in um, the Communications Decency Act. And so the what I have been reading is that it could change... The internet and how the internet works um if if the supreme court um rules in favor of the gonzalez family um so i think that that one's pretty significant um could possibly be yeah yeah um all right let's see what's what's next yep so next um so when do we expect the pendulum or the extremism pendulum to swing in florida um look i think it remains to be seen how desantis um is gonna perform on the national stage but i think as a state politician he's he's dominant in florida Mm um you, you know but it doesn't just come down to him, you know, they now have two Republicans in the United States Senate too. So they they have they're they're pretty dominant in the state. I don't know if we can go into a full diagnosis of the problems Democrats face in the state, but I think top of the list has to be um, uh, the the bleeding they're doing among Latino voters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And until that gets addressed, then I don't I don't think um, I, I think I think Florida is is a pretty solidly red state. I mean, when I was on the Obama campaign in 2008, it was one of the top tier battleground battleground states. And uh and we we won we won Florida in 2008. Um, uh, Obama, once Obama was off the stage, um, then then yeah, it's sort of fallen fallen off of uh, off of that sort of competitive mm-hmm. status. <laughs> the next question is: Who should Christians read for political discipleship? This is this can be either classics or contemporary writers. Yeah, so it's a good question, and this is, you know, something of a self-serving answer, but it is it is just like my point of view, which is, you know, the book I I, I wrote, "The Spirit of Our Politics," because I like there's a reason why there aren't that many great books on this subject. There are books on Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. There are books on uh, here's the agenda Christians ought to have. 
But there's books that diagnose like why American Christianity is the way it is. Yep. What is the relationship between Christianity and politics? There's a bunch of books on that. Right. But um, uh, I'm I'm hoping the spirit of our politics, spiritual formation, and the renovation of public life, my book that will be out in January, will be contributive in this space. I will say, uh, Professor Vince Bacotes, the political disciple. Uh, is a very worthwhile, important book in the space. Would recommend it. Um, and and then it's more you kind of have to construct mm-hmm. exactly from different resources. Yes. You know what this looks like. I mean, I don't want to preempt myself here, but you know, my book draws on the work of Dallas Willard for a reason, which is. Uh, I didn't see that many uh, great mm-hmm. resources on political discipleship. So uh, one of the bridges that I thought had to be built was bridging the spiritual formation, the discipleship mm-hmm. sort of um, genre uh, and, and those resources with those of politics, political theology, that that kind of thing. But, you know, can't go wrong reading Bonhoeffer. Can't go wrong reading C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Can't go wrong Absolutely. reading Howard Thurman. But um, but the question uses specific language. And again, with the exception of my friend Vince Bacot's wonderful book. Oh, and I should, you know, Caitlin Schess has a wonderful book that I, I was honored to write the foreword for, uh, The Liturgy of Politics. That's, uh, I was very excited. I actually met Caitlin in a, in a hallway at a conference and... Uh, uh, told her uh, how highly I thought of her work and uh, told her, and this was years ago, this was before Liturgy of Politics came out, told her I was working, uh, told her I, I wanted, I was planning to write this book about spiritual formation and, and politics. She told me about Liturgy of Politics. I told her, you know, whatever I can do to help you, I think this is such an important thing. I'm so glad you're writing on it. And she asked me maybe a year later, uh, she said, I, "I recall that conversation. Would you would, would you consider writing the foreword?" And uh, and the rest is history. Caitlin is now part of the Public Life Fellowship Program uh, for CCPL and and a good friend. Um, so so I'd also give a shout out to her book. So next question this is a big one, and we get we get asked this uh, questions like this a lot. Um, so happy happy to have this one. But how do you repair relationships that politics has caused to become estranged? I'd love to hear what you have to say on this. I do write about this extensively in in the, in the book. Um, uh, it's it's a really it's a really tough thing. I have some thoughts, but Melissa, yes. what, what what would come first to mind for you? Yeah, part of it is like who can you control in this situ- in any given situation? There's been an estrangement, whether it's from a friend or from a family member. Most likely, it's family member with the use of the word estranged here. Um, is that you can't really control how other people react um, to any kind of reconciliation. Only you can really control how like you react. And part of one of the things that one of the sort of pitfalls or challenges that I see for a lot of people is that they kind of go into it still with a chip on their shoulder of like, I haven't done wrong, or I believe that you know this person that you know I've become estranged from has a 
terrible worldview or this particular politician they've supported I think is um, anathema to like any kind of human flourishing. Like if you hold like views like that strong, you often go into the conversations like sort of revved up to become angry, mm. which led to probably like the fight or like the the series of fights or disagreements that you had that led to the estrangement in the first place. And so I think it's really important to sit and reflect on how will you actually approach this situation? How will you approach this person? Asking God to help you with whatever anger arises, help you to be slow to anger, help you to see the bigger picture, help you to be, help you in the fruits of the spirit when it comes to approaching this person again. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a start. But then I think it's also a place where it's kind of like you have to be open with the other person of like, hey, I don't like where we've ended up and I want to restart the conversation again, but I, I need to know that, you know, you're willing as well. Um, because I think also starting a conversation with somebody who's just not ready or willing, you're just going to end up in a in a bad place again where you're just like thinking ill of the person and not, you know, leading, you know, whatever forgiveness that you should be seeking, you know, <laughs> it might be difficult to bring that out again. Um, so this is just generally what I see when it comes to, when it comes to like the actual on the ground, what is it like to actually reapproach somebody or estranged from because of political views. And the other thing, the last thing you've heard me say this a bunch of times, you've heard Michael say this a bunch of times is about, um, trying to hold your politics a little bit more lightly um, when you're doing that. Obviously, I understand that there are certain situations in which like there are others, there might be other stuff at play, but when if it really is a disagreement on political issues, humility um, is going to go a long way if reconciliation is what you, you really seek. Yeah, it's a good answer, Melissa. I mean, I think I'd just add, you know, it, it, first, and this may not be the most helpful thing to say, but it's it's really hard to repair estranged relationships. It really is. And so um, you just want to be careful about where you're drawing lines yep. in the sand. Exactly. Because um, your line might be way further than the other person's, you know? And so you, you just you want to be careful there. If the relationship is estranged, um, honesty um, and going back and saying, uh, you know, I made a mistake. This disagreement was not and, and should not have been as uh, um, important enough to me to risk our relationship. And just being really, um, really direct in saying that. Because here's, here's the thing. You can't just say, we're going to agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. Because if you have an estranged relationship over politics, you just have to understand 
that it's it's no longer about political disagreement. Mm-hmm. It's a it's it's about a, a, a values judgment, a character judgment yes. that the person feels you made against them, yes. or that you feel that the the person made, the against, person you. made against you. And so that has to be reconciled, um, or or else, even if you get back on talking terms, like that that that, uh, unless that underlying sense of condemnation is addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, that's that's going to be a dark cloud over the relationship, even if there's at least like perfunctory communication. And so uh, that's what I'd say. We do talk about this quite quite a bit. So it's a question that comes up, and um, ho- hopefully that answer to those of you who have heard us talk about this before. Ho- hopefully, uh, uh, what we offered on this episode, I, I think, offers a, a couple couple different things to think about yes so next question um what gop candidate do we wish would get into the race well look i mean so it's it's uh it's such a difficult question because it's uh in an ideal world who would you want the republican nominee to be (laughs) like is that the question is the question who would you want to get in the race because they may not be your ideal, but they could win given like whatever political analysis you have? Um, or is it uh, like who, who who would you want to get in the race because you like them, even though they don't have a chance of winning? <laughs> you know, like and so I feel like, like most of mine are that one. <laughs> yeah, there are like a lot of Republicans I'd love to see run, and that I'd I'd love to like consider supporting. Um, it doesn't seem like a Republican electorate is disposition towards them. You know, um, I, I think it should be pretty. I like Tim Scott more than I like other Republicans currently running for the nomination. I'm glad he's running. Um, I think so highly of former Governor Bill Haslam. I knew it. I knew it. I knew of, that was going to be your answer. Of Tennessee. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, John Kasich um, would love, you know, but those are all, those folks are for different, you know, different questions, you know, like I'd like, it's so because because then you talk about these candidates getting in. Well, what if what if they draw ten percent of the vote and it 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 just leads to someone who isn't as good of a candidate uh, winning? And so, but those are some of the people I'd like to see in. I've said before on this show, um, and I've only this idea is only um, I'm only more convinced of this as I've watched her. Uh, Katie Britt, new senator from Alabama. She's young. I'm telling y'all, I mean, I just want to put my, because oftentimes yes. Yes. with Melissa, I'll say things and, and they happen, but, yeah. but, uh-huh. but, uh, but I have no, I have no proof. So I'm just putting the flag in the ground. Uh, Katie Britt could be a VP running mate as early as 2024 if the running mate is someone with national security credentials already if the, if the top of the ticket is someone with national security credentials already but she she's going to be running for national office down the road one more name to throw in the mix uh chris sununu new hampshire wildly uh popular yeah he really is popular disagree mm-hmm. with him on some uh, on some stuff like 
everybody. Um, but you know, Sununu uh, would be an interesting you know candidate uh, in the race. You know, Rubio has had a tough go. <laughs> He's had yes. a really tough go. But I'll, I don't think I've said this on this podcast before. I think I said it on Faith when I did Faith 2020, um, uh, the podcast I did walking folks through the 2020 election. So much of the hate against Rubio is, uh, is look, he's, he's made mistakes. He's taken positions I don't agree with. Um, so much of the hate towards Rubio is a direct result of uh, millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars being spent against Rubio because Democrats were terrified of him. Yes. Uh, and people just like take this stuff as if, oh, this was inherent. This was inherent. Like, yeah. oh, the, the or, or like the focus on Rubio was just like a rational, unbiased sort of, uh, uh, unbiased observer sort of singling out the worst Republicans, whatever. No, like <laughs> people were terrified of him. Like the crooked media guys, my old White House colleagues, they went after him ruthlessly, mm-hmm. and it was because they were terrified of him, <laughs> terrified of a Republican Party that was led by, you know, 2012, uh, circa, you know, circa 2012 Rubio. Yeah. It does remind me, though, of something I want to go back to, which is kind of a current event thing. I meant to raise it on the SCOTUS stuff, which is like a similar... This is going to be maybe like a, um, things can be true and have merit to them and also be profoundly coordinated Mm -hmm. propaganda campaigns. And what we've seen regarding the Supreme Court over the last couple of weeks is one of those things, which is, look, like it's, it's very... And I'm, I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying there's nothing to criticize in some of what's come out around Justice Thomas. And uh, now there are all these follow-up campaigns about other justices. I'm not saying there aren't discrete issues there that deserve inquiry and question and opposite, whatever. What I don't want you to be fooled by is the idea that this is all happening in an environment in which the Supreme Court is six to three conservative and progressive moneyed organizations. This is they they either see a decade of conservative decisions out of the Supreme Court or they get people so upset with the Supreme Court and and uh, get people to. Um, think that reform, like expanding the court or uh, uh, impeaching and getting rid of certain justices is necessary. Without those things happening, there are certain groups who just know their policies aren't going to move through the Supreme Court, uh, that they aren't going to get the decisions that they're looking for. And so they're doing the best they can with the situation they have. And so I just want, again, it's not don't believe anything you see, um, but 
don't believe everything you see and don't and, and and don't sort of like allow yourself to be so easily ginned up by you know these like social media campaigns and and these these stories like there's a reason why stories are getting published in like the the guardian and in these outlets where you know like uh where these reporters can can get worked so that's all I'm gonna. That's all I'm gonna say there. I don't know. If maybe there will be some questions on that. Um, but it, it is something that's been stunning to, to me as someone who's been a political operative to see it playing out and just to see the like the the incredulous sort of response from folks who are wow the the Supreme Court really is a corrupt institution. Well, make that argument, but. But maybe don't make it just on the basis of the fact that there's a there's clearly a coordinated campaign going on to make you make that argument. So <laughs> moving I, on, <laughs> I, I do have an answer to this question of a GOP candidate. I oh, wish yeah, I could the race. I feel like no one ever really talks about him, and I'm kind of like he seems like he's been doing a great job. He seems to get really positive news stories nationally, you know, fairly often. But Governor Spencer Cox of Utah. Like throw him, throw a person like him into the race. Great guy. Yeah, great guy. And um, his lieutenant governor seems great too. She had to um, temporarily take the governor. Uh, uh, Cox had some kind of procedure, and so the lieutenant governor became yeah. governor for yes, like yes, four yes. hours. And it was just—it was just like a very wholesome. The, the whole situation in Utah just seems so healthy and so wholesome, and like the Democrats and Republicans kind of like get along and don't hate each other, and it's just like, yeah, I, I could see this—the Spencer Cox um, recommendation for sure. Yeah. So our next question: um, How should Christians respond um, to Republicans' focus on trans and gender nonconforming people in multiple states? Yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good question. I think that there are ways in which the political process turn issues like this into blunt instruments and to make it so the humanity of people is lost. Mm-hmm. Now, look, the, my my view is that this is operating on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. There is a clearly a set of ideological markers, uh, positions that the left wants to use this issue. Some on the left want to use this issue to advance. And so I'm not someone who thinks like these discussions can't be or shouldn't be uh, had, that nothing can be contested, that as long as no one is... Uh, you know, forcing, you know, like there's all this rhetoric. Well, what, what does it matter to you? Well, there are, there, are, um, there are all of these ways of how society functions that are embedded in how this argument plays out. And so uh, you just need to be attentive to those things. What I will say is we've also seen play out before a deep antagonism to, to individuals seem to be quote unquote working politically uh, until it doesn't and it was wrong in the first place you know so it it, it was wrong to um, ig- 
ignore and even use use the gay community as a uh, as a punching bag during the AIDS epidemic. So they were either ignored or sort of made into a, a pariah. Um, it was wrong to do that substantively. I will say pol- politically, like those things come home to to roost, like like a a a political approach of disgust uh, only works, again, quote unquote, works for so long, but that wears out. So all I'm saying is, is that if Republicans want to push back in any way, and if especially for Christians to be a part of that, in some of these discussions, uh, both as a matter of Christian duty and respect for the person, and also, and then secondly, out of the fact that we share a community together and and, uh, we are to go back to basics, politics is an essential form in which we are called to love our neighbor. So maybe the simplest way that I could say this is if your approach to this issue isn't one in which you could say with good conscience, my approach is oriented toward the good of my neighbor, then your approach isn't Christian. And I've been, I've been, there was a, there was a, uh, there was a uh, assemblyman, there was some official down in Florida who was presiding over a committee, I believe it was Florida, um, who was presiding over a, a hearing on these issues. And he didn't just state a policy position. He didn't state a positive argument argument about what the law should be. Um, he, he used language that was akin to some of the worst some of the worst most dehumanizing political movements that we've seen in the last century and he used them re- relating to transgender folks and Christians need to just be very clear to not align themselves with that language and to 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 actually say that is not okay and what i worry about is um because some christians are concerned about where the policy and where the culture is going on some of these questions that they will be quiet and even get like a little emotional thrill, a sort of resentment-filled thrill when politicians speak about the transgender about transgender folks in a dehumanizing way, um, and that has to be resisted first and foremost. Um, and if you can't participate in this discussion, if you can't think about these issues without feeling that sense of antagonism, then I'd urge you to sit it out. Uh, I'd, I'd urge you to, 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 to cede the issue to, to those who, um, uh, who uh, can approach it respecting the dignity of everybody involved. And so, look, I, I think, I mean, just to, just to wrap up my thoughts on it, like I, I, I don't, I mean, Self-evidently, there is not one Christian approach to this issue. 
Uh, I have concerns about some of the ideological work that's being done uh, that I don't think is intrinsic to respecting uh, trans and gender nonconforming folks. Um, and I think those discussions have to be had. But um, I've never been and uh, will um, hopefully never be a participant in uh, debates that are seeking to dehumanize folks. Hmm. Good word. Uh, the next question, what's going to happen with the debt ceiling? Are we going to default? I don't think so. I, I don't think. I mean, the United States has never actually seriously defaulted on purpose and the kind of default that we would have. And again, this default would happen sometime around June, which would be when we couldn't uh, pay our bills any longer because the debt ceiling wouldn't be raised in enough time. The type of default that we would face would be very quite catastrophic economically. And so the machinations before all of that, um, obviously Biden has presented his budget and uh, McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, has now gotten um, a House budget together. Um, and I think that this this idea that Biden and McCarthy aren't talking right now is just, you know, both, you know, both of the sides able to say that, you know, I'm not budging, I'm not capitulating, I'm not compromising on these, you know, these... Uh, ideas, stances, values, whatever, um, that I have. Um, but you know, they will start talking, you know, fairly soon. We're almost at the very end of April. And again, we don't have like an exact day for the default because of just how the complex, um, the United States, uh, debt system is. Um, but we're going to be heading into May and I think we're finally going to actually see some negotiations happening. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a bunch closed door right now that is just not being revealed to the media, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, right. So if Barack Obama would have lost re-election in 2012, then uh, I would think default is much more likely. But Republicans weren't rewarded mm -hmm. for... Yes the escapades uh, 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 you know a little over a decade ago and so I, I don't think they're going to want to try that again um, I also don't think the Biden administration can afford no. to be viewed as mm -mm. irresponsible mm -hmm. or holdouts no. here we talked in the morning uh, for the morning five this week. You know, the House did pass a debt ceiling bill. And so the mm -hmm. House is on record yep. passing a bill that would raise the debt ceiling. And so it, it makes it hard for Biden to say how unreasonable Republicans are. Dun, dun, dun. Now, he will he will argue that what the cuts that they made, yes. how they got to that. We're, aren't something he could accept. I don't think this is like McCarthy's final offer, mm -hmm. but it does strengthen Republicans' hand. Um, but I don't. I don't think we're going to see. I don't think we're going to see a, a default now. Look, but this is what 
This is why we had to talk so much about McCarthy's struggle to be elected a speaker, which is, you know, part of the negotiations there were the conserv the 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 um, the the furthest right wing of the Republican Party trying to box McCarthy in so that he can't bring something to a vote unless the majority of Republicans support it. And, and I'm not recalling all the details now, but I believe they try to set the bar even higher than that, uh, than a majority of the caucus. And so we'll see if, if speaking of chickens coming home to roost, if, if, though, if, if we see the ramifications of what McCarthy had to do to become speaker, how, how much those, those box him in. Uh, but but I, I, I think that they'll find a way through it. But ask us again in late May. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to, to, yeah. to Melissa's point, Melissa, I do agree, like the engagement will escalate. Mm-hmm. But one thing about Con- is, is it's, it's, it's rare that they're able to come to an agreement without the, the, the pressure of the deadline oh, directly upon them. So the, I my, do think, I think engagement will increase, deadline. but I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they, if they don't raise the debt ceiling until 48 hours, 72 hours out. Yeah. It, which is so dangerous just in itself, you know, yeah, like there, sure. there's, um, you know, that, that like, uh, you you don't want to be going up. You don't want to be forty eight seventy two hours from defaulting when you got China breathing down your neck and mm-hmm. you you have Ukraine depending on uh, the American government being able to deliver. Um, when you have the EU losing confidence in America, uh, uh, Melissa, correct me if I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. you have. Uh, nations around the world that are considering um, whether the Chinese currency is more reliable and whether they switch over. And so like, you just don't want to be playing games with the U S economy and the dollar right now. And so if we had, you know, if we had statesmen in, uh, in Congress, or at least if we had, if we had enough statesmen and stateswomen, uh, We'd have a deal now uh, or in, uh, yeah. you know, early May. We, we've seen a different track record as of late. Yeah. And the only other thing that I'll say towards this before we move on is that um, our credit rating could get downgraded by S&P. Um, it was downgraded in t- 2011. If anybody remembers for the very first time ever, the United States, like the most powerful economy in the world, um, its, its sovereign debt was downgraded by S&P. And it had ramifications, and it had ramifications especially for, again, global standing, confidence in the United States. Like It affects all that sort of stuff. But part of what I've been thinking through this whole debt ceiling thing is that inflation continues to be quite sticky, and the labor market continues to be quite strong, meaning that those two things are competing against one another. And this talk of recession, are we already slightly in a recession? Do we have the Goldilocks scenario where we're skating – you know, around it, but we don't quite, we won't quite have a recession. 
a, a lot of economists think that uh, a lot more people need to be laid off, that the labor market needs to take a hit so that we can finally get rid of this inflation, which they believe is far more damaging than people losing jobs. And a good part of me wonders if like some games might be played with like downgrade of debt so that the United States economy takes a little bit of a hit so that the labor market's weakened so that we can finally get rid of the inflation. Um, <laughs> it, uh, I've been thinking about that lately, about what you know biden's economic team is man thinking and stuff that, like that would be that would be like an act of hubris of <laughs> no it would be a complete act of hubris but yeah. honestly economists well <laughs> if, if you're looking for hubris that's not the worst place to look yeah, yeah. okay um i think we've uh i think we've covered enough of the serious we topics have. let's move on let's to move the fun, to some the personal yeah exactly uh melissa uh, what do you have any hobbies sort of on the horizon? Any, any sort of ho- anything you'd like to pick up, uh, maybe in the rest of t- 2023? So I have to tell you, um, even when I was little, like I'm talking like eight years old, people would be like, what's your hobby? I'd always struggle and scramble to say something because I've never been a hobbyist. I've never once been a hobbyist. Which is weird because, not to do Enneagram talk, but <laughs> fives are, I think, like, wouldn't no. a five be the kind of person who would, like, collect stamps? I think there, I think there are certain fives for sure, yeah. but... Um, the but certainly of, not you. The you type of knowledge that I thirst isn't collectible. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> or buildable. The kind of knowledge I thirst isn't collectible. Okay. Okay, Rumi. Uh-huh. <laughs> All okay. right. What's something you've learned? Wait, no. I'm going to okay. press you on this. I'm going to press you on this. If you were going... If I was... Yeah. If you were going to pursue a hobby, what, what would it be? Um... Do you like the idea of a hobby? Even if, no, even if you want to do it yourself. Um, what about like learning a language? Oh, I'm really bad at learning languages. I know that you're just providing an example here. But um, yeah, I mean, if I had, if my brain was the type of brain that wanted to suck in languages, yeah, I would, I would be a polyglot. Like I would want to know 10 languages for absolute certain. Um, maybe I'll, I'll, here, I'll make Italy my hobby. Italy kind of already is my hobby. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have a hobby. There we go. All right. All right. Uh, Melissa, what's something you've learned, we've learned from our kids recently? The person noted something small, not not profound. profound. Yeah. Profundity from our children. Yeah. Um, Um, Saoirse walked me through uh, the tadpole frog life cycle. Oh, yeah. And uh, I found that to be very enlightening. And the way that she became very professorial as she mm-hmm. pointed through this sort of chart that uh, she made at school, uh, I did feel like I was getting schooled. So that so that's something. But what about you? Anything? It's always profound for me. I I mean, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of something like small, if like Sirius spit out a fact or something like, like kind of like the tadpoles, and like nothing is really striking me. Um, no. Yeah. I don't okay. Anything. Um, on a plane, on an airplane aisle or window. Okay, if it's a two seater aisle, um, window. 
If okay. it's three seater, I'd prefer to be aisle. And when I'm with you, I would love to be aisle, but I always give you the aisle. That's very nice. Uh, I prefer aisle because it's easier to work uh, on a computer in the aisle. Uh, you can um, obviously, if the middle seat is empty, it's ideal because uh, you don't have uh, any restriction on either side of you. But if you're on the window and there's someone in the middle and it's it's uh, uh, someone who's not giving you a lot of space, then then you kind of lose the flight work wise. And so mm-hmm. so I always I always get aisle when I can. Uh, Melissa, I love this question. Mm-hmm. Um, which president would we, would we want as a roommate? Which president has a roommate? Although I'm thinking I wouldn't want you to have any of the presidents as oh, a okay, roommate. Okay, okay, okay. But let's, I know, let's just really go. really need a female president, Michael. Well, this is why. This is the this main is reason why, why. for this question. So that you could so that room. I can be a roomie. <laughs> yeah. That Hypothetically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think I have... I think I have a couple answers. George W. Bush. He seems like he'd <laughs> yeah. probably be a cute roommate. Yeah. Um, before uh, before he got sober or after? Oh, after. <laughs> um, and then I'd say Jimmy Carter would probably be an excellent roommate. Oh, you that's know? a great like, answer. The ideal roommate. So I probably, my ultimate answer is Jimmy Carter, but I think George W. Bush in his painting period, Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love, yes. George W. Bush in his painting period. Post-presidency period. painting period. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. It's a good question. I mean, right, so many of our presidents are uh, have a unique psychological profile. Yeah, so I, sure. I, it's yeah. a great question because it's like, oh, man. Um, I don't know, like Gerald Ford. <laughs> you know, okay, like okay. Yeah, um, I think Carter is a great, a great answer. Um, I mean, Lincoln put up with Mary Todd's mood, so I'm sure he could put up with mine. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, so yeah, I think, but I, I think it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult question. Yes, um, definitely. I'm interested, uh, this is a question in particular, I'm interested in listener answers too. And, and we need a reason why, you can't just, you can't just say. Um, so yeah, uh, Melissa, our favorite children's book. Well, my personal favorite is Corduroy. It has okay. been since I've been since I was little. I love corduroy so much. I gift that to people all the time if I find out that they don't have it for like their baby shower, or their child, whatever. Um, but a couple that I've liked since having kids, one would be Ellie Holcomb's "Who Sang the First Song." That book, Michael. Every time I pick it up, um, I've now probably read it about forty times. At the end, I cry. I just yeah. cry. That's that book makes me cry because it's because I you know I've always said since Sersha was born that these kids she's not ours Laria isn't ours like they're they're both they belong to God and like that book just reminds me of that um, 
And so I, I really have loved that book. I had no idea what uh, somebody gifted it to us for Saoirse, and so I didn't know it existed until somebody gifted it to us. We've both really enjoyed Candle Walk, which is a bedtime oh, liturgy. The best. I love Candle Walk so much. Yeah. Yeah. Candle Walk is a great book if you ever want bedtime liturgy for your kids. Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, the book with no pictures is really funny. And then there's a couple of really funny ones. Um, one is called Barnacle is Bored and Plankton is Pushy. <laughs> um, they're the only two books that have been made in this way, but Barnacle Bo- is Bored and Plankton is Pushy are legitimately funny books. No. I read them to my nieces when they were little. And so my nieces gave our girls those books. And so I love reading it to our girls as well. Yeah. Um, I love the pop pop fish. Oh yeah, you love the pop pop. I love the pop pop fish. Pop pop fish is great. You know, the the kids haven't really hopped onto it yet, but I think they will. I think Saoirse will this Christmas. I love the Polar Express. You do, yes. I love Anansi. Oh yeah, Anansi. Yeah, you've always loved Anansi the spider. It's a um, great story. Um, Saoirse's really liked that one. Uh, the Seven Brothers. Snowy Day. Snowy Day is yeah, fantastic. You love Snowy Day. I mean, I love it too. There's also on Prime, on Amazon Prime, they animated Snowy Day into like a one-hour like Christmas special. It's fantastic. Yeah. So check that out. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I think those are some of the top ones. Yeah. Uh, Melissa, I think we should wrap up the episode. Yeah. I uh, we're we're just about to hit an hour. We have a few more questions. We'll save them for the next listener. Yes listener episode that we have um but thank you again for great questions and uh always love doing these um because we have such a great audience um but i think that's it for this episode we'll as always be with you for the morning five throughout the week and we'll be back with where we are next week until then bye I still wanna turn up Yeah, I still wanna turn